NFG people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi and it's episode 171. And I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. Welcome, Kai. How are you doing? I am great. Always love the insights shows where we get to learn from incredible guests. Let's dive into it. It's always great. So in this insights show, we're going to be taking a look at developer education. Devs are often shrouded in mystery despite being a core part of the space. So what we want to do today is fully immerse ourselves in their world. So join us while we dive into what devs actually do, how to break into this industry, how important dev communities are, and what challenges they might face, as well as what we hope to see from the future. To dig into this, I'm also joined by Anthony Day, founder of Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. Anthony, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? Hey, bonjour. Mauricio, good to see you. Hey, Kai, great to meet you too. Very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be recording my first ever show from our new location in Lisbon in Portugal. So uh, thank you very much, guys, for the kind invite. Lovely. And we're also joined by Limaris Torres, Senior Security Advisor at Halbra. Welcome to the show, Limaris. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Beautiful weather here in Miami. I really can't complain. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we're all in sunny locations. I'm in London. It's really, really, really. <laughs> well, before we dive in, just as a reminder, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as a tax, financial, or legal advice. Do your own research. So with that, let's get started. So we'll start from the very, very beginning. So we're going to take you on this journey with us. Let's dive into what we're calling the Dev 101. So I'm going to start very from the basics, and I'm going with you, uh, Anthony. What is a dev? What do they do? What, you know, what do they eat? Where do they live? How do they get started in all of this? Uh, so a really broad set of questions, and I don't want to go too, too kind of sweeping in terms of my definition of a dev here, because honestly, they come in all shapes and sizes. But I might try and use a few different analogies that may hopefully help those who already don't identify as devs to pick out devs when you might see them or come across them in your daily lives. Ultimately, developers are people that help to build software and hardware systems, applications, anything that we want with technology. They're often referred to as coders, but in some cases you can be a developer and not necessarily hard code at the same time too. So developers could be building or helping to maintain cloud infrastructure. They could be supporting security systems and, and monitoring active live applications rather than cutting code themselves. In a Web3 and blockchain world, they might be developing the source code from a specific blockchain. So they might be a chain developer or a core developer. They might be developing applications on top of existing blockchains. So you might be a app developer or a smart contract developer, those who build the applications and the automation that sit on top. At the same time, they may have nothing to do with blockchain coding whatsoever. And you might see front-end developers, infrastructure developers, people responsible for building apps, people responsible for building websites. And you could also consider the architect community in the dev bucket if you want to as well, who are, as an architect that designs a house, the architects of software systems and hardware systems. So in this whole pool, of individuals who are responsible for supporting, building, and maintaining the software that we love today in Web 2 and in Web 3. These are them. And for an even simpler justification or uh, analogy, these guys are plumbers and architects. They, they 
they build stuff, they plug stuff together, they design it up front. Hopefully that's a helpful start. <laughs> that it is, yes. So Limaris, if someone's interested in becoming a dev, how do they start? How do they become one? Yeah, so there's definitely several different methods. I personally started on YouTube University, you know, free 99. It's a great resource. You just, you start with curiosity. And then from there, depending on your learning style and what suits your individual learning style best, you can choose what avenue to go. If you're a self-starter, if you're naturally curious, you know, learning on YouTube videos and websites like BuildSpace might be the way for you. But if you're someone who needs a little bit more of a structured approach, you can do online boot camps or you can go to university to um, become a software engineer, a computer engineer, right? There's, there's different um, programs out there that really tailor to the type of builder that you want to be. And there's programs for blockchain development and there's programs for everyday, you know, builders in the real world, as I like to call it. Um, so if you want to be a front end dev, if you want to be uh, someone who writes in Java, someone who writes in Rust, someone who writes in Solidity, I would say that there's a lot of different avenues that you can that you can take. And a lot of the resources are accessible through the Internet, thanks to the pandemic facilitating that for a lot of people. So I would just start like literally just start. You will find that you begin and you take your first YouTube video uh, or you take your first build space or code academy challenge or your first boot camp and you leave day one and you're like, oh God, what did I just get myself into? But like anything in life, the more you practice, the more comfortable you get and the better you get over time. It was a super helpful intro and would love to help the audience understand like what are some of the key programming languages and technologies, particularly for crypto developers? And where is the mindshare around? I would imagine you know, not every crypto developer knows every language. And so, you know, can you unpack some of those? Yeah, this is really important. And uh, interestingly, uh, building on Limaris is um, kind of when do you get started? It, the other important, another important part of this is at, how, at what age do you get started? So I remember typing a series of instructions into a BBC computer at about age seven, I think. And in the same way that people are building and constructing things in Minecraft or building blocks or vehicles in Lego, the exact same thing can be happening with code. And so the, the at what point did you become a developer? It could well be I became a developer at age eight because I, I got interested in the idea of typing things into a computer and other things happening as a result when I hit the go button, right? Um, but to, sorry, back to, the, back to the question, Kai, before I go too far down the rabbit hole on that one. Um, there are any number of different computer programming languages that are essentially ways of constructing machine-readable code that people can then compile into applications or running systems. Right, so older examples of you know, very, very old coding languages used in the banking system was COBOL, for example, which was used to program mainframes. More recently, you see languages like C, C++, C Sharp, JavaScript. When you get into Web3, you then have the likes of Solidity, Rust, which has been used to then go and create languages for programming um, on certain blockchains. The reality is a number of those different languages have different conventions terminology, pre-programmed um, functions that you can call that allow other things to happen. Think of them as macros or shortcuts. And the challenge with Web3 and, and developing a blockchain is that not all of the code you write on one blockchain is going to be accepted or read by another. This is a challenge for developers to then have to essentially pick a side as to where they might want to develop. 
and or interoperability of different blockchains as well. So if you've got code or a smart contract that's written in Solidity running on Ethereum, it may be more challenging for that code or those digital assets to be accepted or ported across into a different non-Ethereum chain. So the challenge for developers is how many languages must I learn to be effective? It's perfectly sensible to make a career as a Solidity dev today because there's a huge amount of um, gravitational pull around Ethereum and EVM chains, right? That ecosystem has grown incredibly big. At the same time, if you're a really niche developer, I mean, Rust as a language is plays very, very well into blockchain and there are less Rust developers, I believe, than there are Solidity developers out there. So there's incredible demand. So from a commercial perspective, you might earn a better wage by working on some of the more niche languages, right? If you're a COBOL programmer still alive today, you're probably making a huge amount of money from banks that may still need your skills when you know all of the other developers have probably long died. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but these are some of the trade-offs, right? Is how Do I learn languages that I want to program on certain chains or do I want to learn languages that will earn me more money? And my experience is that devs typically get into this type of work because they're interested and passionate to work on projects that they love. Um, but again, a trade-off in what, whatever you choose to do. And there are developers out there who know and understand and who can code in multiple languages, right? So it isn't an either-or. Absolutely. Yeah, I would just add to that very quickly. You know, the top three languages right now in blockchain that we see is Solidity, Rust, and Go. And Golang is something that other industries are also using. So if you're someone who's listening, who you're debating, you know, I have a little bit of experience, I dabble. If you know Go, you know, we're there's several chains that you can work with that. And if you're like a higher level, you know, there's, there's different levels of the stack, right? Lower level, you're used to working in memory and indexes in memory, then Rust might be the easiest transition for you. And if you're someone who is familiar with JavaScript, then Solidity is very similar to a higher level JavaScripting language. So those are the top three that we see in the industry. My recommendation is always start with where you are and with what you know. Um, first, get to know the different ecosystems, right? Obviously, if you're doing Ethereum, it's mostly Solidity and Go. Some of the dApps are built on Go. If you're choosing Solana, it's going to be Rust. And, you know, choose an ecosystem, choose a type of industry or niche within that ecosystem. Is it going to be NFTs? Is it going to be DeFi? Is it going to be building a wallet? And then just start with a project in a language that you're comfortable with working at that level. Um, we see a lot of developers say, oh, I'm just going to become a Rust developer because it pays a lot. And then they're indexing in memory and they have to clear in memory the transaction after it happens. And they're like, I'm not a computer engineer. I'm not used to having to think about like this low level machine stuff. They're just like whiz kids that want to script away. And so Go and Solidity might be a better fit for that personality. I love that. And full disclaimer, I started my career off as a Cabal developer. I've done that for like five, six years. There's still code of mine running somewhere in the world. <laughs> they don't change that often. So they're still there. Um, I think as, as we wrap up this uh, first section, uh, I think one of the, the, the big questions that I wanted to kind of tap you guys into was when I joined 11FS earlier in the year, it was the first time I heard someone talk about developer experience. That was, and that was mind-blowing to me because when I was a developer, nobody cared about my experience, what experience I was having you know, during my work. What is it that makes a project successful in the eyes of a developer? That's a really good question. So, I mean, in terms of success a developer could see success of a project from participating from being actively involved in something meaningful even if the project dramatically failed being able to improve skills being able to write even a few lines or a series of codes or part of a program that actually is successful is could could count as success especially in web3 when a lot of the code is open source 
some of the early projects get forked and later go on to become incredibly successful or incredibly interesting projects. So that's probably thing one for me. You know, thing two is probably about the feeling you get as you're developing. A lot of it is late nights, hard work, crunchy problems, creating custom code that you, you maybe you didn't have to, or you know, a, a previous branch of code didn't exist that you, you can reuse. The hard yards sometimes are the most memorable, right? Some of the best projects that I've ever worked on in, in non-development work have been those where you've been up all night trying to solve a problem or trying to find a bug in an Excel sheet that's going to make the difference between a project being viable or a product launch being viable or not. And you're on the line to try and figure out how, to, how did that fail. Um, I think back to developer experience, it's also around how well are you served in terms of tooling or capabilities to do your job to the best of your ability. If you're doing mundane tasks or you know, doing particular admin or QA on a project that could otherwise be automated, that's going to make you frustrated because you're there to really think through the framework, the logic, the different commands, the different operations. That's where your magical brain is being, is, is being used in the same way as you don't want a chef cleaning the pots in the kitchen because ultimately they're there to create beautiful things on a plate, not to figure out how to make the plates clean afterwards. Well, that. What's your definition, Lamaris? As a dev, I care about two things. Am I solving a problem and am I getting users? Like, is anybody using my tool that I built? Like I can, I can build like a like button for transactions on wallets right now. And okay, whatever. It's like a unique feature. It's like socializing blockchain. But at the end of the day, if I don't gain adoption, if no one in my little like niche discord channel is like, oh, that's cool. I want to use it like, 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 and spamming like me with likes. If no one's like trying what I'm building, then I think that um, you kind of feel isolated and that's when you get discouraged. So I think uh, with developer experience, a lot of it is community. And a lot of it is you feel good because you find a solution to a problem that's out there. No matter if it's a dumb solution or a very complex solution, <laughs> um, there's a lot of pain points and the less pain points, the better, right? And again, adoption are other people in my Discord channel, are other people at this hackathon that I'm participating in? Are other people gonna use this? And then can other people collaborate and take it a step further? Like maybe someone messages me on Discord and they're like, yo, I saw you did a like button. I'm um, gonna enable notifications for any time that you like a transaction because now I wanna see who you're stalking. And then my other friend's going to take it a step further and they're going to be like, oh, I found the Genesis trading wallet. Let's just go like all of their transactions, right? So, so it's a lot of community building. It's a lot of sometimes random use cases that you start with a little thing and a friend adopts it and next level and next level and collaborating is cool. Super interesting. So I want to go deeper into you know, some of the developer ecosystems and particularly the role of open source. Uh, so Anthony, we, we've got a lot of you know bankers and, and TradFi folks who, who listen to the, the show and like, what role does open source play and, and how, to how do you contextualize crypto development and how much of it is open source versus some other industries that, that tend to be, you know, are they as open source? We just don't see it. Or how do you think about that? That's a good one. So I think at the core of blockchain, crypto and Web3, the, the movement or the philosophy largely is open source community-based open development. So one of the great things about that is that at any time code can be reviewed and audited. It can then be, um, it can be attacked. It can be branched, forked, and then used for something else. But I think the, the kind of the community or the philanthropic nature of Web3 says that we're going to put out code there that we believe is useful. We're going to build developer capability, community, and ecosystem of apps around it. And if kind of Darwin style, if it is, if it is fit for the purpose, and it, and it can deliver value 
for as long as it's live, then we've done our jobs. If it isn't, then we'll take that and we'll move on, but we'll see what somebody else does next. You know, interestingly as well, when, when you look at open source repositories, you see the number of comments coming in, the number of developer commits. You start catalyzing other developers around you once you've created something and, and you start seeing comments come through, you start seeing challenges, you start seeing people picking up exploits or people starting to say, well, if I was, if I was trying to do something nefarious to this particular source code, this is what I would do. And you can see a lot more energy around creating something that's for everybody as opposed to those people who are creating code that is entirely closed, uh, proprietary, IP protected. Um, from a commercial standpoint, you then have to think about your scaling very, very differently. Right? So if you're making IP available to everybody, how are, you, how are you going to then make sure that you can be commercially viable? Is it about, you know, with network effects in Web3, it's about how many people are interested in the projects using, using the tokens um, contributing to utility on the network, which as a result creates viability, which as a result creates that kind of gravitational pull, which as a result creates value. And then you know your code list exists in perpetuity. If you launch an app that's closed source and it was good for a while, but then eventually it dies and, and you create another app, that's okay too. Um, but you, I think you have a very, very different experience of developing if you do an open source versus closed. Agreed, agreed. I was going to say the whole point of blockchain is to be decentralized. So obviously open source is like what I'm here to show. <laughs> um, and from a security perspective, it's like a love hate, like at Hallborn, you know, we're, we're constantly working with projects from all sorts of different ecosystems. And one of the benefits that we have as an advisor is that people are using open source code. So, or open source libraries or, you know, open source projects. So we can go, we can review something, we can figure out how to secure something. And then we'll see that three of our different clients are using the same library. So once we figure it out in one place, we're able to help so many more people. And then it seems like open source also unlocks you know, this this notion of composability. You know, Mauricio, can can you talk a bit about kind of what is what is composability and and what does that mean for the the crypto ecosystem and pace of development? I think composability is the ability to actually build something on top of something else, right? And and I think one of the things that uh, Web three primitives allow is for you to build something around a token that already exists. And you don't have to be even remotely involved with the original token. You can just build around the behavior or pre-existing behavior of that token. And you can create other tokens that interact with that. And, and that creates this infinite loop of innovation that we're seeing in Web3. Um, that's the whole reason why we call DeFi the money Legos, right? You can play with them as much as you want and create this increasingly complex intertwining of things that didn't previously exist. And to Anthony's points earlier, that's the whole reason why we're seeing the pace of innovation go so much, so much faster, because not only the code is open, but how the code behaves is also public. And everyone can see how these things interact with each other. And it creates a much more, you know, vivid, alive uh, ways of interacting with innovation. I mean, obviously, the amount of VC money that's poured in the last, you know, 18 months also helps, you know, having the fuel to actually have the energy to go and build stuff. But more importantly is that these things are now available. Uh, if, say, a bank builds an app, there's no way the other bank's going to, you know, look into it and see, you know, how the app's evolving and the code behind it. And, you know, if their onboarding can be utilized as my own onboarding and while I do something else that I'm really good at, in Web3, you can, and, and that's why I think we measure success of 
protocols in the amount of people that are actually developing on those protocols. Because that's intimately related. The ability to build stuff relates to the amount of people that are actually going there and building stuff as well. I'd add on top of that one if I could, Mauricio. It's it's the entire stack is composable. And what we're trying to move towards, and this is this is true in Web 2 as it is in Web 3, but as you're looking at being able to have non- legacy blockchain core developers starting to engage with decentralized technology, the ability to plug and play wallets, marketplaces, data feeds, also known as oracles, the ability to have interaction between digital assets on different chains using existing bridges or existing code that has been QA used a thousand times, it's had a whole bunch of value and, and data forced through it over time. The more you can get to a low code integration of features for decentralized technology, the more the rest of the world can play with it. It becomes less of a secret society or a closed club of people who just understand and think about things a different way. You can actually say, we're going to launch a decentralized application that is, avail- that is open to a market that has a total value of $4 trillion dollars. And it has an accessible user base of DGENs who love this stuff, who, who equate to you know, maybe 4 million or 10 million or 100 million users. That becomes incredibly powerful in terms of the building blocks. And it, it's not just necessarily the quick token launches. Yeah, agreed. It's kind of scary, though, because like in terms of composability, like, yes, we can build upon each other, but also half of this stuff is like shoestring and bubblegum code. So it's like a little <laughs> scary to see like VCs throwing like, 10 million or 15 million at like someone who just completed a four week boot camp on YouTube University for free. Well, like I have a love hate with it where I love to see that people can change their lives, but I kind of hate to see shoestring and bubblegum code. And I can tell you like at Hallborn, some of the stuff we see is pretty, it's like adopted by some of the biggest players in the world because it's open source and they built something on top of something on top of something. And all of a sudden the next thing you know, this skyscraper is like being held up by a toothpick. And all it takes is the right hacker to come along and sniff it and be like, oh, I like chaos. Let's watch this tower tumble. So so it's definitely a great feature, but it's something to keep in mind is we always have to make sure that we're building with security in mind. And just because it's open source and you can build on top of it doesn't mean that you should just trust it, right? We should trust, but we should verify that it actually is secure. Nice. And you should make sure that you engage with uh you know, ideally Holborn or any other security company of choice to make sure that whatever you're about to adopt and throw 90 million onto, maybe that it's unhackable. You know, maybe let's not be the next bridge hack on the news. Let's not end up on wrecked. Let's look for the right headline. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. It's, it's a great point. So it, it seems like there are, there are developers that are building infrastructure and then there are developers that are building applications. Let me, like, how do you think about the relationship between the two? And you know, is there an infrastructure phase first that, that's built and then the applications come? Or are they kind of being built simultaneously? And as you mentioned, if the infrastructure isn't mature enough and there's an application that's successful, then there's a risk you know, later on. So how do these, yeah. these two play together? Yeah, I'd say infrastructure always comes first. Like if there's no iPhone, there's no app store, right? So it's the same thing on like Web3. Someone had to come up with the idea of these decentralized network first and how they wanted their decentralized network to work, be it proof of work or proof of stake or proof of history or whatever consensus mechanism. And then once the infrastructure or the ecosystem, as I like to call it, is built out, then we can really start talking to developers and saying, hey, would you build a DeFi API or some sort of you know exchange on my new chain or on my new ecosystem? And also, I think that a lot of people try to 
divide us. Like, I don't, I don't know why it's like builders are builders. Sometimes we build marketplaces for NFTs and tokens. And sometimes we build nodes and we manage nodes and stuff, you know, like at, uh, at my, at my previous role, one of the largest, uh, infra providers in the space, like we had the same builders managing both the infra and some of the apps. So I like to say that a good builder can do both and will do both because the only way to really make sure that you're you're not only secure, but you're you're building a solid app <laughs> uh, and not just, again, from an unhackable perspective, but from a functionality perspective is to make sure that you understand the ecosystem, the infrastructure and the app that you're building and whatever programming language you're using on top of that. Then Anthony, how do you protocols attract developers? You know, if you have infrastructure that that emerges, you could build some incredible infrastructure. How do you find those developers? Do you, if one model is you build the applications yourself on top of it, if you do both, as Leigh Maurice just mentioned, or how do you attract application developers to come and build on the infrastructure that you created? And what have we seen in the crypto industry so far that, that has worked there? Yeah, so apart from the obvious of throwing a giant bag of cash at them, I think you've, you've got a number of different factors, right? And so also in terms of who's who's hiring or who's attracting these developers, some of them are linking, linked directly to the specific projects themselves, the layer ones, the Ethereum, the Solanas, the Polkadots. These are guys who maybe through their community or through interest in the founders of these projects, find themselves caught up right and so they will they will they will gravitate towards a mission or a vision or a purpose or you know cult of personality in some cases so early on it's, it's a whole mix right it isn't that these guys are being given giant bags and huge amounts of tokens to get involved it might just be for the love it might also be for a salary but that that's kind of thing too the whole how to grow an ecosystem in blockchain or in web3 it, 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 it requires a number of different things. So it's not just the technology. So there's the protocol and what does the protocol promise and what can you do with your infrastructure is kind of part one. Part two then is what are other application developers envisioning on it? And there's a role of some of the early protocol teams to envisage what is possible with this particular protocol. What are the problems that we think we can solve? And how do we find people who are out there trying to solve these problems? So it might be that they've got some specific gravitational pull towards solving for faster transaction speed or greater security or greater decentralization because they have a really strong libertarian view set. Or it might be that actually they see a blockchain or project that has really fast infrastructure that says, oh, actually, I, you know, I've been working in gaming, but I'm sick of working for big AAAs. I'd like to build decentralized games or I'd like to work in music and media, or I'd like to solve for problems that help solve humanitarian things, because that's the messaging that comes out of the team that's developing the infrastructure. So it's part tech, it's part marketing, honestly speaking, at that stage. You've then got, well, if, if you're starting to attract some early developers, some early projects, it might just be through friends and family, it might be through grants and incentives, you're then starting to see capital flow into that ecosystem. So the venture capitalists that are coming in and backing those projects because they're built on secure or interesting or differentiated infrastructure, they're being founded by projects and product owners who have a good reputation, who have an interesting vision. Hopefully, as Limaris has said, it's not just throwing money at people who hacked a couple of things together on the weekend. There's actually a decent investment thesis behind that. And then it's about, are we developing utility for users that people are actually going to kind of come back and want to solve? What, what problems are we going to want to solve? You know, early on, we started with money Legos because that was easy. And so it, it attracted retail investors, it attracted traders, it attracted people who wanted to gamble on risk. 
Nowadays, you see so many different verticals where you can start to see you know, certain blockchains gravitating towards certain ways. So Polkadot um, you know, has always been about multi-chain interoperable. You look at um, Polygon that has specific verticals around gaming to some extent, and then also just being a better version of using Ethereum. You see Avalanche coming out with Fast, Cheap and Green, Algorand, Fast, Cheap and Green. You know, those projects that have high volume and that value sustainability, for example, um, I, I won't go too deep on that one. I'm going to call out BS on some people saying we're fast, cheap and green because you're not that fast, you're not that cheap and you're not that green. <laughs> but that's some of the messaging. And that virtuous circle continues. The more it goes, the more growth you get. And you can pool or you can double down on certain parts of that, right? Whether it's the infrastructure and you create something even better, whether you can attract more devs through grants, whether you can attract more VC funding through the relationships, whether you can bring in more customers by being selective by the projects you choose that have large user bases or big commercial partnerships that already attract, you know, if you go and partner with FIFA, chances are you're going to attract a very large number of football fans if you create something great. Um, so that cycle, it's not just about any one thing. It's all of them in consort. Yeah, I would just add to that education because I can't join your ecosystem as I, if I don't have like documentation on how to build. And I see this all the time with like shit coins and a bunch of other scammy looking projects where a friend will tell me, oh, have you heard about Protocol X? And I'm like, no. And so I start looking into it and they're like, yeah, let's like build something on it. I'm like, okay, sure. Like, let's let's look at it. But there's like no white paper or the white paper is like copy pasta from some other well-known <laughs> protocol. And then there's like no developer education. So there's no like how to run a node document. There's no how to write a smart contract on a language document. And at the end of the day, I can't adopt your ecosystem if there's no user guide on how to adopt your ecosystem. So education is a huge, huge, huge component to that. Hackathons to encourage people to come together and like build ideas. Um, and also just solving a problem. Like we want to build on chains that are actually solving problems. For example, having to have um, like Cosmos is something that a lot of my friends are really interested in right now because of all these like sub chain concepts where interoperability and we can all kind of like coexist instead of having to fork and fork and fork and fork. Um, and so when you have something novel like that, that might attract some Ethereum developers because all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is a huge pain point for me. This ecosystem looks like it might solve it. Um, and so, and so I think in part it's having a good solution in part, it's having education so I can figure out if I'm online and I'm frustrated and I'm going to spend eight hours and I get to nothing, I'm never going to adopt your chain. And the other thing I like to say, and if you've been following me, you, you know, me, you know, that I say this all the time, the Wright brothers were first in flight. Nobody flies a right plane today, right? Like nobody actually flies a right plane. We're getting on Boeing and we're getting on Airbus. So just like there was a couple thousand iterations of different varieties of planes since the Wright brothers discovered how we can get in the air, there's going to be a couple of iterations on chain. And I'm going to I'm going to say it over and over and over again. The next best thing hasn't been invented yet because there's constantly something new. And then comes SpaceX and it's like, oh, we're going to take the Wright brothers next level and we're going to go to space, like actual to the moon. So I'm excited to see what happens. Always ask your layer one, can you do forkless upgrades? If not, chances are you might be in for a monolith that may not be around in five years time. Yeah, exactly. So upgrading and immutability is like a love-hate because it's immutable, so it'll never change, but it's a pain in the butt because that means I can't upgrade it. So Yeah, I, I think the the Wright Brothers analogy is is a great one. It feels like the the pace of innovation is only speeding up where there are new layer one blockchains that are emerging. And so like do you see any sense, maybe Anthony, like, will there be consolidation where, you know, there'll be a handful of, of blockchains that, 
you know, reach this critical mass with developer mindshare or, you know, there are new blockchains launching every few months, you know, is it just going to continue where there are more and more variations of these technologies that are competing, you know, for open source, you know, developer mindshare? That's the ultimate question. And the more niche you go, the more specific your developer ecosystem, as long you can still remain commercially viable with a very, very small pool of developers and commercial partners. It may be that that's okay, right? There are very many software houses out there that are developing applications that are used by 100 people in a very specific industry. If you look at the shipping industry, there is a, there is a specifically dedicated software sub-industry just for that that the rest of the world will never know about and will never care about and will never use. But, that, but that's a thing, right? I think you're going to see consolidation in the large layer one or layer one-esque players because you're going to want to have decent amount of security, a decent access to capital, a decent access to code repositories that can be reused, and where at some point the level of maturity of the tooling around those particular blockchains or the particular projects make it easy for others to work with. So that might not necessarily be developed by the layer one themselves, but there are software developer kits or APIs that the the next layer of the community has built on top of that I wanted to say earlier on the show, that SDK ecosystem is also super important. I think you can only go so far with some of the fundamentals of blockchains, right? So it's going to be about level of decentralization, amount of security, and then performance. And there's only so much you can do within those three things. Under that, you've probably got which language are you writing in? And do you see that there is a a more accessible use of code, coding languages to be able to then make it more accessible for people to use? Are you going to attract more capital to your ecosystem because you've done it differently? Probably not, right? There's a fixed amount of capital and it can only be spread so many ways. If you're solving problems that are useful to people, chances are you'll be adopted. And if you continue to solve those problems at the pace that the industry is moving in or at the pace the problems continue to evolve, then you're in a good shape. If you create a monolithic, unforkable or hard to fork or hard to evolve layer one in 2015, 2016, and it's the same and it is always the same forever, chances are when it comes to Boeing, Airbus and SpaceX coming along, it's probably going to be less relevant. But at the same time, you you do still see COBOL code being used today. So those early generation one blockchains may still be around. But everything in the middle gets squeezed because you can only talk about fast, cheap and green so much before everyone realizes you're not differentiated. Agreed, agreed. And for sure, I think that the Wright brothers are like my favorite example because the first light was like 1903 and we're like a little bit over 100 years later and we have all these crazy missions that we're doing in space, right? Although I think the first rocket launch was like in the 50s. Honestly, it was like 57. So it didn't even take that long to take it next level after that. But we still use the foundation, right? Like, I don't think Bitcoin is going to be irrelevant because the concept is very important. And um, I don't think anything that we have in the middle is going to be necessarily irrelevant just because, again, um, it wasn't until Monero came around that everybody was like, whoa, zero knowledge proofs are so freaking cool. And uh, then Cosmos came around and was like, you know, um, sub sub ecosystems but if it wasn't for ethereum we wouldn't even have DeFi. like DeFi was born on ethereum nfts were born on ethereum and so i think that we're forever going to use this knowledge but the knowledge and the problems that we're looking at and it's like a moving target right we're constantly going to try to build in a bunch of different directions the more we know the better we can do it and hopefully we'll do that with security in mind because you know otherwise we're going to find uh wrecked pages or or wrecked's going to have like someone else every three days 
Okay, so we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa's helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as on-ramping, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, stablecoins, telematics insurance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. So now that we've covered the 101 communities and challenges, I think we should uh, take a look at the future, right? So right now there's a ton of different styles of conferences and getting togethers, and either even if it's online or uh, in person. Lemaitis, you mentioned hackathons uh, a few times uh, during you know the previous conversations. So uh, are this still good? Are, they, are is this still the way to actually foster community? How important are these in actually building out? And what's the trend uh, about hackathons in the future? Yeah, so I think hackathons are going to be around for a long time because hackathons do two things. It gives developers the opportunity to showcase their skill set and make fast, easy money, if you're a good developer at least. And it gives institutions the ability to like you know, lay off their problems on hackathons and be like, hey, we'll give you 10K if you can solve this problem that we've been having for six months and nobody can actually solve it for us. So I think it's like a mutually beneficial um, event to kind of have. I don't think it's the one size fits all solution, but I do think it is an essential solution. It is an essential part of the solution, right? Like we still need ecosystem. We still need education. And hackathons, a lot of the times people expect you to just show up and like build something. And I'm like, whoa, this is the first time I'm hearing about half of these people that are asking for bounties on the hackathon, right? So like, if you show up to hackathon, you register with your teams, let's say you're all developers on, I don't know, like let's Solana ecosystem or something, right? And there's, or, or Ethereum. And so there's different bounties and different vendors are like, hey, I'm a market maker. Hey, I'm a DEX, I'm a wallet, I'm a this, I'm a that. And our bounty is if you can build a cool use case to do X, Y, Z, or W, which translates to we have this problem and we don't know how to figure it out, um, we'll pay you anywhere from 10 to $50,000. And I think that those are great, but sometimes I show up to a hackathon and this is the first time I'm hearing of your wallet. <laughs> and it's cool that you have a bounty, but it's the first time I'm hearing about you. So I think having education around those, and I think the Ethereum, um, the dev cons are pretty good about this because the Ethereum dev cons will have the hackathon portfolio, but they will also have like little keynote speeches where people can go and listen to different types of um, developer issues. Like let's learn about security. Let's learn about um, this specific uh, data storage on chain. Let's learn about how to reduce gas fees. Let's learn about MEV. So you'll have like these short 40 minute like micro learnings. And they're, and they're great because then they can help educate us. And for sure, hackathons are part of the, 
solution. I think also just in general community outreach, like there's this new role that was recently created in the industry that's developer relations. And so, you know, being on Twitter, finding the people that are, and okay, don't steal my recruiting tactics, but the way that I recruit people is I go onto the discord of whatever protocol I'm trying to like hire someone for. And I look for like the most active members in that discord. And I'm like, yo, this kid's good. He's a whiz kid. He's building some real cool stuff. Let me like slide into those DMs and see if they'd be interested in like collaborating and maybe we can onboard him onto our ecosystem or onto our project and then we can teach him the rest of the way. But I think education is the biggest um, uh, roadblock here onto onboarding people. And I think that's why like Hallborn, for example, Steve, our uh, co-founder, he created a blockchain security course with this organization called SANS that's gonna be ac accessible to anybody. Anybody who wants to learn about blockchain security, how to hack NFTs, how to harvest keys, how to do like DeFi exploits and bridge exploits and stuff like that, they can take this course with Steve and they can learn about how to do all that. And the purpose is so that you build code defensively, right? A lot of the times people call us and they're like, hey, we built this really cool thing. It's live to go to market, but it, it goes live in two weeks. Can you like do an audit real quick? And we're like, no, <laughs> like actually no, like I don't want to touch you with a 10 foot pole because that tells me that you didn't design with security in mind. And they're like, oh, we just need a smart contract audit. And they forget that there's so much more, like you have a web two component, you have like some stuff that you're calling in the cloud, you have your smart contracts, you have your nodes that you're running. Like these are four different things that I need to come and I need to review and secure. It's not just your smart contract. So love hackathons. I will be participating at many more and I hope to see y'all. So there's one thing that comes out of what you're saying, uh, Lamaris, which is, I come from banking as well for many, many years, which is enterprise grade, right? You know, it's, it's great to build, you know, quick and dirty when you have to kind of figure something out. But when you're launching something that many people are going to use and a lot of money is going to go through, that's enterprise grade. That has to be enterprise grade. And as a side note, we saw the merge take place in Ethereum recently. And it took what seemed forever for the, you know, community, crypto, Twitter, everyone was like, when this is happening, well, that was enterprise-grade software for y'all, right? That's how you actually change the engine with a plane flying into a kill nobody, right? So I think that is of coming of age on blockchain in a sense that now I guess the community understands what we're playing with and how serious we need to be if this is going to be a grown-up industry and not only, you know, a, a, a pastime hobbyist uh, weekend style. Yeah, we're not there maturity-wise. Exactly. I'm not going to respond to that by saying how many times Polkadot has upgraded itself seamlessly and weekly since inception compared to it taking years for Ethereum to upgrade itself once. But the point I did want to make about hackathons is the opportunity to incentivize Whatever it is that you would like to see in your community, I think is super important too. So being able to incentivize project teams or create hackathons for project teams from specific backgrounds, from specific industries, from specific countries around the world, the ability to bring to your ecosystem or to your project diversity in whichever way that matters. It's not just about crypto bros getting together, being sweaty for three days and trying to come up with something that looks crap on, on screen. It also incentivizes or gives teams an opportunity to showcase themselves. So there's an incentive for them to come and say, well, we, we won Hackathon X. That's actually a really great credential for us to then go and take to a VC or to another organization to be able to create funding. 
So I think there's a, a whole bunch of other ways that all the different parties involved can benefit from hackathons. It's not necessarily just about any one team. It feels like it, it lowers the barrier to entry, you know, for for developers coming into the space, and it's less about you know formal credentials of which school did you go to and you know go in an interview and solve some problems that might not be relevant you know to the actual work that you're doing and just very practical you know can you learn this and can you demonstrate you know what you've learned and um, it's exciting particularly from a global perspective uh, where you can have developers you know any place where there's an internet connection that can participate rather than you know they'd have to get a visa and come to the US and and go to a top school that you know, a bank or a company is recruiting from. Yeah, no, it's great. And that brings up a great point because for these dev comms, you know, it is expensive to get a hotel and fly to a random city. And luckily these dev comms tend to be free and food tends to be included for free as well. But um, for a lot of students in college that are thinking like, oh my God, what am I doing with my degree? They don't even teach Web3. You know, you can apply to these Web3 hackathon as a student and potentially get sponsored or get a scholarship. Like I just worked with the Cornell Blockchain Club at the New York City campus to help them sync up with the Ethereum Denver folks so that they can have, you know, scholarships. So all the students get free tickets and I think they're going to arrange something about housing. Now the students just have to figure out how to get there. And so that kind of lowers the barrier of entry. And a lot of these, I mean, this is Cornell, this is like a better school, but a lot of these different ecosystems and a lot of these really, really, really good and well-funded and well-organized hackathons will do that for students. And honestly, students are some of my favorite people that I meet at hackathons because they're not biased. They're like fresh into the space and they're here to ask all sorts of weird questions that none of us are thinking about because or like propose new solutions that none of us are thinking about because we're too in the box and we've been here too long and this is just the way we think here right i love that fresh insight so if there's a student listening apply to a scholarship apply to a grant get your school a grant sometimes they'll even give you like free nodes to run at your school just to like for science as i like to call it <laughs> there's a lot going on i love that awesome so so that eating it don't kill us all we're going to wrap up today's discussion. So thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find more about you online and your companies, uh, Lamaris? Yeah, so Hallborn, you can go to our website, our Twitter, our LinkedIn. Uh, you can slide into my DMs. Please no like perverted pictures, though. Um, I'm happy to help, you know, and the earlier you can get us involved, the better, because I'm here to really make sure that we make innovating safe again. I hate hearing about $600 million Ronin bridge hacks with all those users. So the earlier you can get us involved and the earlier, you know, you can, we can start building together with security in mind, the better your project will be for the long run. So yeah, reach out to any of us. Lovely. Anthony. Thank you so much, guys, for what was a great show. Limaris, it's great to hear some of your insights as well. I mean, as with security, I would also add, you know, you can never have too many lawyers involved in your projects as well, because typically what we're trying to do now is we're trying to break stuff. So the more deliberate you can be upfront about what you create with your project, the more deliberate you can be about some of the, the ways it's going to break things and how you can get ahead of that, whether that be commercially, legally, technically, security-wise, you know, all of that comes into the mix early on. Um, where you can find more about me, so you can find me probably on LinkedIn. I'm a minimalist, so I don't have Twitter, I don't have Bebo, I don't have other different social medias. Uh, so LinkedIn is the place you can find me. If you wanna hear more about other podcasts like 11FS Blockchain Specials, I have a show called Blockchain Won't Save the World, focusing on hype-free, uh, nonsense-free, easy-to-access content around a whole bunch of different topics in blockchain. We also spent the last season going through the backstory of blockchain in a whole bunch of different countries. So if you're from Brazil, Malta, Israel, Canada, UAE, Japan, 
Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, and a whole bunch of others. If you have curiosity around how blockchain is happening in the real world today in any of those places, come check us out. And blockchain won't save the world on all places you get your podcasts. Lovely. Thank you. And Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Crx Mauricio, on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi, and obviously 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works and we're so excited to be talking about crypto and blockchain and Web3 with you again. If you can wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes. We have a huge back catalog. Get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or a Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.